We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the top stories of the year from here in Taiwan and we'll be seeing whether my guests tonight agree on Taiwan's top news from 2018. And we've got several categories to go through today, but we'll begin with the top local political story. And we flipped the coin and Brian, you won. (laughs) So what's your top political story from the island this year? So elections just happened last month, and I think one of the biggest stories is is the results of the referendum which uh, took place. And there are a number of referendums held on a number of different issues, but I think what is so interesting about Taiwan in terms of local politics is that there is this provision within the constitution to have a nationwide referendum. And the results, as we saw at the polls, were a defeat for... uh, causes that were pushed for by the people that were pushing for the referendum changes to begin with, the changes to the Referendum Act, which took effect um, last year. And a lot of conservative groups were victorious, particularly uh, anti-gay groups or uh, the KMT-backed referendums on nuclear energy and other issues, um, which was a surprise for a lot of people because the referendum has been traditionally pushed for by the pan-green camp, which had this uh, long-term aim of eventually holding maybe an independence referendum um, to permanently solve the issue of uh, Taiwan's unification or versus independence. Um, but the results were very different, and I think this will really change a lot of local politics going forward. Um, as with other electoral politics, referendum is seeing uh, a lot of money being put into these uh, campaign efforts. And so, yeah, well, going forward, we'll just have to see what happens, whether there are calls for further changes to the Referendum Act and so forth. So the referendums, Ross... Well, the result was a disappointment uh, for for lots of people who had thought that uh, some of these issues had either generally been settled or that had they been put to a vote, the the, the outcome would have been what they expected. So on issues like nuclear power, a lot of people just thought, oh, this is settled already. Uh, Decisions whether or not to proceed with a coal coal fire energy uh, facility, that this was settled or the politicians already worked it out. Why are we even voting on it? Uh, with the marriage equality, again, the, the, the supporters of marriage equality ha- had hoped for uh, earlier action in the legislative UN, which didn't happen. The court has ordered the legislative UN to take action. So again, a lot of the supporters of marriage equality um, thought that this was kind of in motion and, and were surprised that there, there was a referendum and that momentum built around the referendum. And then the result was not what the supporters of marriage equality ha- had expected. And then uh, added on to that was the referendum about uh, sex education for, for younger school children. And the result, again, was a disappointment to the marriage equality uh, camp, which was also pushing for uh, or it supported a referendum for uh, sex education to counter the anti-sex education referendum. And similarly, the the Olympic referendum, the the, the Supporters thought that who would oppose this, uh, having the name of Taiwan as as the team. But but we've discussed many times on your show, Gavin, over the last few months, that the International Olympic Committee, um, China, obviously, were were going to make every effort possible within their authority, which would, in this context is is uh, ultimate. They have, they really do have the final say. It wasn't just up to Taiwan. Uh, so the supporters of that referendum, again, they were surprised, but practical realities 
along with the you know, actions taken by the International Olympic Committee, such as issuing letters to the Chinese Taipei Olympic Committee, made it clear that this was not going to proceed even if the referendum had passed. Uh, and then you know, we got the result that we did. The, the, um, so many people looked at, looked at this and said, this is just a bad idea. Right, Brian, going back mm-hmm. to the, your referendums you talked about there, mm-hmm. the anti-same-sex marriage referendum and the nuclear energy referendum, mm-hmm. of, co- of course these are both government policies to push through same-sex marriage and obviously to do away with nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Both the referendums just fell flat. I mean, do you think this is the government's fault? Do you think the government should have done more to promote its opinions going into the referendums? I think that's one of the challenges of the government, that uh, if you are putting these issues that you're supposedly pushing for to a referendum, then you have to also play a sort of objective role in that. Um, otherwise, you'll be accused of trying to influence um, the voting process in a way that is uh, defies due process. Um, these accusations are oftentimes thrown around in Taiwan with each camp leveling charges against the other that it is violating democratic norms and so forth. And so this is always a territory in which I think the government has to tread carefully. Um, what's very interesting, though, I think particularly because this is the first set of referendums which have been held since the uh, changes to the Referendum Act last year, was that there were conflicting sets of questions on the referendum ballot. For example, there was a two sets of questions on marriage equality, but one with wording more favorable to marriage equality and one with wording more uh, unfavorable to marriage equality. Yet voters voted the same way anyway. On the other hand, with an issue such as uh, nuclear power, um, you had voters vote to remove the provision by law in which Taiwan is supposed to be nuclear-free by 2025, which it was a question if that would have happened anyway, uh, but also to vote against allowing food imports from areas affected by the Fukushima disaster, which seems like a kind of contradictory result. But at the same time, that does seem how, to be how people vote on referendums, that people look on questions sometimes on an individual basis. Um, on the other hand, then, it is you do have uh, a question such as um, you have two different wordings of the same question. People did actually vote the same way for the most part. Um, it's also a further question that a lot of referendum questions, uh, several of them, did not pass the threshold needed to be legally binding, meaning that of all these questions, people did not fill out all the forms in the voting process. That just raises proce- uh, questions for how votes are carried out in the future. I mean, there's a lot of issues with long lines and uh, complaints about that and complaints that that might have influenced the election process. Right, Ross, what was your top story from 2018 political-wise? I'm going to sum it up in one word. It starts with an F. No, Gavin, it's not that word. It's failure. So, uh, although you might you might have used the word I was thinking of as an alternative, and and where were the failures? Well, uh, what we were just talking about uh, with the referendums, we see a lot of failure from uh, supporters. People had brought forward certain uh, referendums, as I said, they had thought the results would be favorable to their side, and they failed at that. And, and the uh, other sides of these referendums were successful, and that was a again, it was, it was quite a big surprise to the supporters of those referendums. The DPP, clearly, uh, they, they failed. They failed in executing their policy agenda. They failed to persuade voters for the local election, obviously not a national election, though we're heading into one. Uh, but they failed to persuade voters uh, that their local candidates were the best candidates. And, and it, it's such a large failure that we see that not just with incumbents who lost their seats, uh, Zhang Hua being an example, uh, but in the open seats where people, th- or I should say Taichung is, is also a great example, uh, but but open seats such as New Taipei City and obviously Kaohsiung, where the DPP thought, hey, we have a great candidate, somebody who on paper looks great, he's well known to, to the citizens of that uh, constituency, um, and, and they, they lost, they failed. 
Uh, and I'll say that the KMT failed not in the sense that uh, you know, they did poorly in the election. Obviously, they did very well in the election. But uh, their success in the election, I think most of us would agree, was in, more due to the DPP's failures rather than the KMT saying, we have something better to offer the voters. Here's our policy program. And clearly, they were not known for that. Uh, Han Goyu in, in Kaohsiung. Uh, was successful due in large part to his style, his energy compared to Chen Shimai. He has some policy ideas. People criticize him for not having uh, su- sufficient depth in his policies. Um, you know, he's talked about expanding business ties with China. We'll see if that happens. Uh, but but a- as an organization, you know, th- they didn't really say we're the better choice. Um, and that, that was a failure on their side. And we'll see if they could fix that going into the national election if they want to win the, the presidency and win back the majority in the legislative UN. So, Brian, failure, the word of the year. I believe you used a similar word <laughs> on election day when you say they flubbed it up. Uh, yeah. So I agree with that totally. Um, failure is the word because the DPP did not do well. And oftentimes that was not because the DPP made any particular mistakes. It just uh, it just really dropped the ball where things were considered. Um, the KMT that it seems to have returned is not so much, I think, due to the KMT's own successes, but just the DPP just uh, they, they did not convince voters. And so voters decided to punish them by voting again for the KMT. And apart from Hangul, I think a lot of the KMT's candidates were surprisingly uninspiring. Um, there's a lot of criticism of the DPP for putting forward older establishment politicians that have been around for a long time rather than new faces, uh, which is definitely a failure of the party. But that also has been the criticism of the KMT for the past few years. And I think that was, that was quite visible. Um, many of the candidates that put forth were, in fact, uninspiring, yet um, just by default they won because voters were not happy with how the DPP has really uh, performed in the past few years or how quickly it has managed to uh, carry out the campaign promises it did promise in 2016. The scary thing there, Brian, is if, uh, as as is in the media in recent days, certain personalities become the premier, deputy premier, uh, other cabinet ministers. Because what's in the news in the last few days is uh, uh, Premier William Lightchinga Le- Le- is going to step down mm. or. or be approved to step down because he's been trying to step down ever since the election mm-hmm. day losses. Uh, and, and the name, we don't need to name, name the names, just the, the, the names being thrown around as, as taking on um, the premier, or as I said, de- deputy, other ministries are, are all the same faces that mm-hmm. have been in government before, that they were in government under uh, the previous DPP administration, President Chen Shui-bian. Uh, they've been in the party leadership. They've been in the legislative. And look, this this was the criticism that I often made of somebody like Lin Jialong or, or Pasue Yao Wenzi, the candidate here in Taipei City, or, or uh, Chen Shimai down in Kaohsiung. Just like you were saying, Brian, that you know, these are people who've had every job imaginable within the political universe in local government, central government, legislative UN, party headquarters. And now they're, they're still struggling to, to resolve that. And they're, they're not putting forth anyone new. Uh, whether it's for the party chairman or uh, potentially to lead the government uh, within the next few weeks if, uh, as as uh, expected, Premier Lai is out. Right, let's move on from that and move on to another top story of the year. And we'll throw this one to you, Brian, and we'll talk about our cross-strait story of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, actually, this uh, story that 
I would like to hope Fukushima has been up in the news for the past few years. But what is quite interesting is that after the re-election of Koenja, uh, he continues to hope to carry out cross-strait exchanges with China. Um, the most recent exchange took place on December 20th. And as part of that, he doubled down again on comments stating that there's one family on both sides of the Taiwan Straits, which is a comment that Ko had seen criticism about because when he was elected into power in 2014 originally, he seemed he was perceived as being much more pan-green, although he was a political independent, or at least leaning towards independence in some way. And that has really changed in the past few years. And with rising antagonism between Ko Wenzhou and uh, the DPP, Ko has increasingly carved his own path in which he has sought to carry out uh, independent exchanges, primarily with Shanghai, independent of the government, um, circumventing the Thai administration in some cases. Um, these comments that Ko made regarding uh, one family on both sides of Taiwan Straits, originally when he made them, he did not submit them in drafts of the speeches that he submitted to the National Security Council. And so this continues, and I think this has an important uh important ramifications for politics going forward, particularly after the KMT seems to have come back in uh, in, in elections, because this offers a model now for other city mayors to conduct exchanges with China in a way that goes around the central Thai administration. Um, I think particularly that's the case with Han Goryu, who has suggested that that is something he will pursue um, with China. Um, the details that have to be worked out in the coming year, but I think this is this offers a model for KMT mayors to, uh, you know, to try to conduct independent relations with China in a way that, again, pushes Taiwan closer to China. I'm going to say public opinion. And what I mean is that China's behavior towards Taiwan, we know, is is very bad, to, to put it mildly, <laughs> on, on a number of issues, whether it's participation in international organizations, refusing to talk to President Tsai's government unless she acknowledges the 92 consensus is the basis for cross-strait relations. Uh, so the public, according to polls, uh, most polls, there's some that there are outliers, but most polls say the public is is unhappy with the way China behaves towards Taiwan or, or the views of China are, are not favorable. Simultaneously, though, and this has been consistent over the last two years uh, of the two and a half years that President Tsai has been in an office, the polls show that the public is dissatisfied with the government's cross-strait policies. There was even a poll in Want Want uh, China Times in recent days, which the, uh, the the Chinese government was very happy to cite in, in press conference and um, official state media, that 61% of the public in Taiwan supports the 92 consensus as a basis for cross-strait interactions. Uh, obviously, the, 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 that kind of question you know, kind of lacks context, and people answer, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, but, but the key thing is that polls consistently show that the public is dissatisfied with how the Thai government is conducting cross-strait policy. And I find this very fascinating because at the same time, the polls are showing that the public is dissatisfied with the way China treats Taiwan. And the the public, the voters, the majority did vote President Tsai in, knowing that she would not follow the same approach that President Ma had followed for eight years to um, have a more accommodative relationship with China. Uh, so wh- where does that leave us? We don't know. It's clear, that though, that the public's opinions towards China are in flux. And I, I would say that notwithstanding the opinions of foreign observers who, who think they know Taiwan better than the Taiwanese themselves, that maybe the public is is not eager to rock the boat or, or to be too antagonistic. Maybe they just prefer the status quo or, or a majority of the public. Just, just prefers to try and keep relations with China moving along. And, and that could be driven, 
for the most part, by economic considerations. And maybe we saw some of that with the voting result, especially in, in central and southern Taiwan, where people were hurt by fall in agriculture orders from China and the fallen tourists as well. Uh, maybe people don't like a, a heightened uh, military threat situation. So that's part of their concern. And they'd rather not have the tensions. Uh, but but there's there's a trend there. And will it impact the next presidential election? A little bit too too soon to tell. Um, but uh, it clearly, the the public does not have an appetite to move too aggressively on separation issues. Money, Brian. This all boils <laughs> down to money, really, doesn't it? And also pragmatics. I think that people do not want to disrupt uh, cross-strait relations because of the threat that is posed to Taiwan. And it's a question, what does 1992 consensus mean to a lot of people? It's a floating signifier in some sense. Uh, everyone has their own belief about what that means exactly. And what does it mean when people say they back the status quo? The status quo is also an incredibly vague term. And so I think that's definitely true. Um, but what is interesting to me about the cross-state exchanges with China is that sometimes this will really affect the international perception of Taiwan. And that is, I think, the significant risk to Taiwan, um, that Taiwan will be seen again as moving towards China, that the views of the Taiwanese populace have changed. And um, that, that could have severe impacts on how Taiwan is uh, thought of by international actors going forward. I often notice that there's uh, sometimes the only way, metric by which Taiwan's uh, view of China is uh, looked at by many international observers is just who is the president. And that's not always the case. I mean, that doesn't say a lot about public opinion, just whether you have a KMT or a DPP president. But to assume that once you have a, a DPP president that everyone is pro-independence, and if you have a KMT president, everyone is pro-unification. And I think that, that is always misleading. Um, so I think the real danger comes from uh, international perception of Taiwan. Well, 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 I was going to say, ultimately, this is a democracy. So that, that we have to respect the, the democratic choice of the voters. Uh, so you, know, you go back to 2008. People accuse Mahang Zhou of being tricky. I, I, and I, I would strongly disagree with that. It was very clear as a candidate that he was going to seek to have better relations with China. And he was going to say certain things that, that would allow that to occur. Uh, and then fast forward to 2016 or 2015 election campaign, uh, President Tsai, uh, as a candidate, I think she, it was very clear what her cross-strait policy would be, that she would not follow Mind Joe's policy, and, and people voted that in. And now people are, are seeing uh, the, the policies that the government has implemented, and they've decided it, it seems, again, based on the polling, they don't like it. They don't, they don't like it. So as, as you said, Brian, it could be that they, they really now are, are going to look for a more practical approach to cross-strait relations. Right, Ross, do you have a, a cross-strait word or a cross-strait topic for the year? Well, I, 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 w I would say that it, it's the, the uncertainty and, and the public reaction um, that, that I've been talking about. So uh, you know, the uncertainty about where we go um, and, and more from the public, what, what does the Taiwan public, not, not the politicians, not you know, the KMT presidential candidates who we don't know yet, who they'll be, or the DPP candidates who could be president's hire or could be wide open if she decides not to run again. Uh, it, it's uncertainty on, on this side, uh, right? Not, not uncertainty on the other side. We know the other side would love to have 92 consensus. They'd love more Taiwanese to be working over there. They, they would love for the Taiwan government to allow more Chinese money to come into Taiwan. Uh, but, but there's a lot of uncertainty here about what the Taiwanese people want. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And so it's it's a question going forward. People sometimes vote unpredictably. Um, sometimes, you know, people, particularly with regards to these issues, um, it's not the only thing you, you evaluate when you are voting for a politician. Um, Cross-state policies just takes, uh, it's just one of the many positions that any politician in Taiwan needs to have a stance on. And 
sometimes it is the case that in recent years people focus on domestic issues more rather than international issues, and that actually oftentimes precludes consideration of uh, cross-strait issues that, that is sometimes just viewed as a non-issue. It's quite surprising, particularly when uh, things were so heated in 2014 that this provoked a massive protest. But things change, and uh, you have these you know, ups and downs in the sentiments of the Taiwanese people. Right, we have to take a short break now, but we will be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to continue our review of the year with our next topic. And our next topic, well, I just pulled it out of a hat, and it's, Ross, it's your turn to begin, and it's like the society story of the year from here in Taiwan. Well, I, I don't want to use the uncertainty word that I used previously to talk about cross-strait relations, So, uh, but, but, but I do feel that there, there's uh, some apprehension about a number of issues. So I'll, I'll use A, I'll say apprehension. Uh, the good thing is crime is not a a big problem, but we have the, these high-profile cases that capture uh, media and public attention. And it, it, it's a concern, why do these things keep happening? You know, why, why are people kind of losing, losing their minds in this way and, and committing such violent um, uh, crimes of passion? And, and it just seems to, to be a recurring, recurring problem. Education policy or, or the state of education, it's, it's a source of apprehension for, for parents uh, or university students. And, and you know, with the resignation or firing of the education minister within the last few days, uh, this is going to now be the fourth one if they find someone willing to take the job <laughs> within the last year, uh, largely due to the um, dispute over uh, the selection of a new president at National Taiwan University. Uh, but but it's a concern um, you know, for, for parents. Uh, you know, what, what's the future of the education system? Uh, there's economic concerns as well, right? We know that wages have, have stagnated. Uh, so, so there's a lot of apprehension. That may have been a factor in the local election. It's definitely going to be a factor in, in, in the upcoming national election. But, but I think we, we see this over a, a number of different policy areas, and then it crowds out any good news that might, that might be there. Apprehension, Brian. Were you apprehensive this year? <laughs> I think I'm apprehensive every year. Um, but that's the case that there's this social anxiety, and I think a lot of times, uh, particularly regards to, let's say, the NTU presidential selection scandal, um, this returns the government to uh, assuage society, to convince society that it does have a plan set out, um, that it will follow this plan, and uh, oftentimes just follow through on what it claims to do. Um, in such cases when the situation has met resistance, uh, for example, with regards to the choice of NTU president that they originally wanted to uh, block the appointment that was voted for by the NTU uh, presidential selection committee, um, the situation kind of backed down, then it decided that, okay, no, we're going to follow through on this with this removal, and now eventually they did allow for the person who was voted in to be voted in. And so just sometimes the government just flip-flops, and that's it, that, that provokes both sides, and that fails to resolve the issue and just inflames an issue that could have been uh, taken care of or not become so big through decisive action um, just by this constant flip-flopping. And so that does just add to the social apprehension. I think that, again, maybe going back to uh, what we were talking about re regards to voter behavior, people are looking for something else from the government right now. They want the government that can really address apprehension in society. That's, that's very interesting because you, you look at a person like Han Goyu and it, it, it's style, not necessarily mm -hmm. substance, that mm -hmm. he doesn't make you feel like he doesn't yeah. You know, he's not going to be apprehended, right? He makes you feel like he's going to make a decision. We don't know what that decision will be because <laughs> his policies are, aren't very detailed. Uh, but but at least he, he's trying to portray himself as, as a, a leader of action. 
Right, Brian, your local society story of the year, or word, whatever you pick there. Um, so yeah, I picked a story, but it also does tie into what was mentioned uh, with regards to social apprehension, um, which was specifically the series of murders that took place um, earlier this year, the most high profile of which was the uh, killing that took place on Huashan in this uh, artistic uh, community that had occupied a field that was actually just directly across from DPP headquarters um, that they applied for the, from the city government to use. And this was, uh, uh, this was something that really attracted the attention of the media, which I think goes back to maybe one of these causes for um, panic or uh, fear in society, which is the media, that uh, cases are honed in on by the media and inflamed because of the fact that people are afraid and they, they really leverage on social fears in order to sell. Um, this was a case in which a, a woman, a 30-year-old woman, was killed by an archery instructor and dismembered, um, and the body was discarded. And this was a, a, a series of cases that uh, took place around this time also involved dismemberments. Um, one even suggests that, you know, the reason why these cases all took place and were similar is because uh, murders would take place and uh, the murderers would look in the media and see what else was going on and decide, okay, well, this is what I have to do in the case of murder. And so you do have similar behavior uh, repeating itself in, in a set of murders. Um, I mean, this was mostly, most of these cases were murders of women by men, which is quite striking because I think that, again, maybe points to social values that uh, there's this uh, uh, there's issues of domestic violence or the naturalization of uh, abuse of women in Taiwanese society in many cases. Uh, but this is not what's focused on the media. Instead, the media focuses on these you know degenerate young people that are killing each other and uh, really inflames these cases without sometimes uh, even allowing, sometimes interfering in due process, just not actually waiting for the process of uh, law to be carried out, but just reporting on every news development blow by blow as though it's a soap opera. Well, yeah, speaking of dismemberments, one that uh, was of interest to the foreign community, um, mm, which includes right. in our listenership, yes. is, is the dismemberment of, of a Canadian, uh, which uh, the accused are, are foreigners as well. Uh, not, not related to a crime of passion or, or men against mm. uh, women. Obviously, the, these were all men, uh, the, both the, the alleged murderers as well as the victim. Uh, but uh, how to address these things. I mean, let's hope that the, the media, you're talking about the media might fan this, mm. Brian. You know, let's hope we're not in a situation like we have with with suicide, where every article about a suicide has to have a disclaimer, well, if you're thinking of suicide. I mean, what are they going to put in the murder stories? If if you're thinking of a murder, of committing a murder, call here's who to call, you know, a helpline for, for wannabe murderers. Uh, so we often do see these kinds of um, very... Uh, shallow uh, responses to these situations, which is is unfortunate um, because it doesn't really solve the problem. It's just a way for politicians to say, oh, we've done something. So we'll, we'll write some new laws or new regulations. We, we see that with, with the accusations of, of fake news or, or false stories where you know, even now the government is trying to draft a regulation. And, and Brian, you talked earlier about policy flip-flaps or, or going in different directions until they reach where they want to be. I think we've seen this with this with the proposed fake news regulation as well. Mm, that's right. Where, where uh, first we'll write a law. Oh, then we'll write a regulation. Oh, then we'll change the law. Uh, we'll have penalties. We won't have severe penalties. It'll just be guidance. And they're, they're just going all over the place. We'll talk to a lot of people, then they didn't really talk to anyone. Uh, so... <laughs> What the ultimate uh, goal is has now become unclear, and, and how they'll uh, turn that into policy is unclear as well. Uh, so we also see with all these problems, uh, whether it's uh, something related to the economy, education, uh, high-profile crime, uh, that, that we don't get really good policy choices either. Yeah, and that's uh, – there's actually – it is funny because regarding the disclaimer about suicide, there is one case in which the government, which it's, the courts tried to find the employer of a murderer 
guilty as though the employer is responsible for this murder because this took place during work hours. Uh, this was not from this year, but then after that, there was an event this year where someone did mock the case by posting on the internet. Well, if you're to his, you know, uh, the owner of a store posts this in his store to his employees, if you're thinking of committing a murder, please request the day off. <laughs> and so that, that's part of the issue. <laughs> right, we'll move on now. We'll go to Taiwan internationally. And, well, Ross, your top international Taiwan-related story for 2018. Uh, I'll say international organizations because Taiwan, the current government, has made a lot of effort to participate in, in international organizations such as the World Health Assembly and the World Health Organization in some format, uh, even the you could put into this conversation the recent referendum over the Olympic name and how the International Olympic Committee began sending letters uh, to Taiwan. Uh, The withdrawal of the hosting rights for the East Asian Youth Games, um, which occurred in August, um, to to be supposed to be held in Taichung next year, uh, maybe as an outgrowth of of the proposed referendum. Uh, And there, there are numerous other international organization examples as well, like uh, Interpol, and again, many others. Uh, and Taiwan has sought the assistance of, it, of its friends, such as the United States, Japan, Canada, European Union. And, and we see a repeated pattern where the other governments, uh, putting aside the U.S., because the U.S. Is, is more enthusiastic in its efforts, uh, but the other governments, the, the, their spokesperson will say, we, we support Taiwan's participation, uh, meaningful participation. They'll throw in uh, so, some nice words like meaningful. But then nothing happens. And it's not like these governments are, are going to walk out of these organizations or their annual assemblies over the issue of Taiwan's participation. And on the other hand, the government here does not want to uh, attend on the basis by which the Ma government was comfortable attending. So we're really in a logjam here, right? Nothing, nothing is happening. And Taiwan is is outside of participation in these organizations. And the argument that Taiwan government or friends of Taiwan government have made that uh, it's a big risk. It's a big risk for Taiwan not to be at the World Health Assembly. You know, it's a risk to the international health system, uh, or for Taiwan not to be participating in, in international civil civil aviation organization. It's a risk to flight safety. These arguments have not worked. So. Where do we go on this one? It, it, it's it's difficult to see a path forward, uh, and some say you got to hold out. You cannot accept the ninety two consensus. You cannot accept going as part of the Chinese delegation, and, and those might all be very valid reasons um, not not to accede to China's demands. But but the result is the same. The result is Taiwan is not a participant. And of course, Brian Ross is talking about us every year, talking about the World Health Assembly, the United Nations and various other groups that Taiwan always tries to go to. But we repeat our stories every year. Mm-hmm. It seems that way. And so is the same organizations, because these are the important associations in the world. Um, and there is always the criticism of the time administration for not doing enough. And also, at the same time, you have people that agree that the time administration's current approach is, is what is needed, that... Uh, that this is pragmatic and, and you don't rock the boats too much and therefore that's the best way you can participate. But the fact that the, you always have these criticisms and this defense, um, it's it's always there. And that just goes back to the kind of unresolved dilemmas of this. Um, with regards to international bodies, because uh, I think other countries in the world are also caught in this power, uh, caught between, let's say, China and America in, in a comfortable position, sometimes they also are just playing a balancing game, which is oftentimes what Taiwan also does. But at the same time, at the end of the day, China is and always will be larger than Taiwan. And therefore, for countries that are caught between, let's say, America and China in the same way, 
it sometimes does make more sense to favor China than Taiwan. And so this is just something that Taiwan needs innovative approaches to deal with because this will always be the situation. Um, and with regards to a DPP administration, people do expect more um, and people do expect a solution to this, this quandary. At the same time, the Tsai station has not been able to do that. And even then, it maybe has not been able to package what is, it is doing in a way that satisfies its constituents. And so that will be a question going forward, particularly into elections next year. Well, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that, Brian, that the government has, has difficulty packaging what it is doing because they, to be fair, I suppose, to the government, they would say, well, here's what we've done. You know, we, don't, we don't participate in the main meeting, but uh, we're mm-hmm. engaging with so many other governments on these issues. So many visitors came to Taiwan from these organizations or from relevant, related organizations, uh, scholars uh, on these specific issues, whether it's health or other ones. Uh, so I, I'm surprised, just surprised to hear you say that they can't package what they're doing. So if there are, they are doing something, if they're having separate tracks, track 1.5, track 2 on uh, mm-hmm. terrorism, financing, or because they're not part of Interpol, or healthcare issues, because they're not part of the WHA, or civil aviation, because they're not part of the, the ICAO, uh, they, they should be able to get that message across to, 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 the, to the public, whether it's people who um, generally don't support the government, or people who generally support the government, but think the government's not doing enough. And that, I, when I say that, I have in mind um, the groups that go to the UN, and mm-hmm. that, that are fellow travelers with, with the mm-hmm. DPP, right? They're part of the broader uh, pro-Taiwan identity independence camp. Um, so they go to the UN, they go to the WHA. Uh, th- this sounds like there's a disconnect on the government side, like among their supporters, if, if some of their supporters are not, not seeing, they're not, they're, they're not able to feel that the government is doing enough practically you know, as far as participation. So, but, yeah, yeah, a bit yeah, surprised to hear you say that. I think, I think again, it's a maybe style versus substance thing because the government is doing things. However, the way it presents these policies is often very uh, wonkish. Uh, you know, it has... It says that, okay, we did this, we have this statistic, and so forth. But I think sometimes what these uh, constituents of the DPP really want are stunts, in some sense, or dramatic actions. Um, for example, you know, when Chinese netizens attack Tsai Ing-wen, Tsai Ing-wen responds on Twitter saying, okay, well, welcome to Taiwanese democracy, that doesn't actually have a lot of practical effect on anything, but it's it's something that appears in the media and it's uh, touted as uh, showing Taiwan's democratic values and things like that. So I think that is that is sometimes what the, the Tsai Ing-wen is really lacking in. Um, ability to really uh, sell policy on the basis of style, um, even if sometimes it is able to do things uh, practically. Right, Brian, what was your top international story involving Taiwan this year? Um, yeah, and so it's actually also similar because uh, with regards to international uh, organizations, I think what is also important is international trade agreements and also uh, the questions of Taiwan's alliances with countries apart from the U.S. and other regional players. So particularly what I had in mind was uh, the issue of the uh, comprehensive framework for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the form that the TPP, uh, former tra- TPP trade agreement took after the American withdrawal um, from the trade agreement, which was originally knitted in, intended to knit together the Asia-Pacific uh, economically in order to have greater incentive to defend against China. Um, and so Japan became the dominant power within the what was left of the TPP, now known as the uh, a uh, comprehensive and progressive agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, CFTPP. And Taiwan has sought admittance to this, but because of the referendum result in which um, food imports from Fukushima-affected areas are still banned, uh, this has led to, to questions about whether Taiwan will be allowed into the TPP, um, or the, uh, that is the new version of TPP. I mean, th- these questions were at stake before with regards to, for example, beef imports from America, um, which had uh, treatment from roctopamine, a hormone, a growth hormone, um, 
so these issues of food agreements, uh, food safety have always been a kind of barrier for Taiwan entering regional trade agreements. But what's interesting is because this is uh, just a kind of regional rebalance. Just how do you build relations with Japan in, a, in an era in which American power in the Asia Pacific seems increasingly unstable? And so I think it raises a lot of the uh, questions that are, are geopolitically salient at present. Well, the, uh, Brian, as you noted, the, whether or not Taiwan could have been in, a member of the, the new TPP was always in doubt. And Japan's foreign minister made it very clear after the referendum that well, Taiwan cannot get in. Uh, and Japan was supposed to be Taiwan's great friend. So uh, th- there's probably, in the near term, almost no likelihood that Taiwan will enter, certainly not as we enter a presidential year or legislative and presidential election year in 2019, uh, with the election being uh, in January 2020. Uh, so the idea that the government legislative UN will make great legal changes to get in is is really slim. Uh, and they have the concern about China. China's not a member, but effectively could put pressure on the member countries not to allow Taiwan in. Uh, so trade agreements, Taiwan is, is just going to continue to be excluded. Uh, there's discussions about FTAs on and off with uh, the U.S., or investment protection agreements. Most recently, Canada, Canada's foreign minister said something to the effect, oh, yeah, we would look at that. That doesn't mean it's actually going to be looked at or actually anything's going to be done. Uh, but people overreacted to that here in Taiwan in a dramatic way. Oh, Canada wants an investment agreement with Taiwan. Frankly, it's not even really needed because it, it, there, there's no protections that Taiwan investors in Canada or Canadian investors in Taiwan lack right now that that investment agreement could, could really address. It's, it's just political. Uh, so th- that's not something I, I, I could have much optimism on um, in the trade agreement space. Uh, I think Taiwan's best best route for the trade issues is to leverage its participation in the World Health, uh, sorry, in the World Trade Organization, as well as APAC. But we see with those organizations uh, that Taiwan doesn't really uh, have a high profile. Right, and we shall finish the show today with my pick. That is the phenomena of 2018, that being the claw machine. They're the claw machine. Now, now, Ross, you can pretend you didn't, but I know you have. You've actually played claw machines. I confess. They're everywhere this year. They, they sprung up all over the place. Every empty storefront in Taipei and most of the island, a claw machine store would pop up where you walked in, you put your well-earned shekels into said machine, you moved the claw around, and you tried to get a rather naff gift. So, Ross, what naff gift did you win? Uh, this year, I, I've won several dolls, actually, which uh, I gave to friends who were very happy to receive them since I don't keep dolls. Uh, but and what type of dolls would they be, Ross? Well, would they be human-sized dolls or children's dolls? Well, I'm going to have to uh, make another confession. Given my advancing age, I'm not familiar with uh, the cartoon characters that are currently popular with, with younger people. So I, I, I cannot identify uh, who these dolls were portraying. So if we put them in a lineup, like a bunch of suspects in the police station, I still wouldn't be able to name them, uh, Gavid. Uh, but uh, for 10 NT, uh, I suppose it was a bargain to, to grab one of those dolls. And how many times did it take you to actually get the doll? Well, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a very uh, very good claw player, so um, I, I just grab them the first one, Gavin. Right. Now, Brian, of course, you haven't played claw machines, but you... You've done a photo essay and you went to 100 claw machine stores. Um, that's right. I actually did also write uh, on the phenomenon of claw machines because it is so strange and interesting. Um, and what I've learned from this is there are some quite strange claw machine uh, stores out there and also some quite strange things within claw machines. Um, for example, I've seen 
claw machine stores that have a shrine set up in inside as though it's a regular business. I, I almost wonder if the store owners are, are burning ghost money and conducting other, you know, uh, religious ceremonies that are intended to provide for prosperity for these businesses. Um, within claw machines, I've seen or heard of things such as having the claw for a smaller claw machine within a claw, you know, as a prize. Um, having pillows with the name with a, the picture uh, with a picture of the store owner on them. Uh, toilet paper. Uh, I saw I, I saw and won a keychain of Donald Trump in a claw machine once. Um, it's, it's very strange. And the thing is that part of this model is that people rent out each machine individually, and so people put in some pretty random things because there are quite a lot of uh, people with some random tastes out there, or they think that this will be appealing to consumers. That, that's a, also a very interesting point about this phenomenon. And it's kind of uh, a microcosm of how Taiwan's economy operates, that uh, it, it's fractured, right? Mm. So you say, oh, oh, you go into a store, but, but actually the machines are rented by individual owners who try and make money or lose money based on what they put in the machine and whether the machine is honest or not, et cetera. Uh, but, but so, so it's very fractured. Um, everyone's trying to make a quick quick buck you can't use uh yo-yo kai the mrt stored value card that, that most people have uh you can't use any type of digital you know your mobile phone apps to pay for it uh which in, in a 21st century modern economy you would think that you could use some kind of cashless card uh so like in hong kong you could use your octopus card nearly everywhere uh, so, it, 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 so it becomes an all-cash business. Who knows if they're paying their taxes, right? Uh, so, so you just get a lot of dislocation from from running these businesses. But I guess that's that's how Taiwan's economy operates in many ways. It seems that way. Yeah, actually, uh, the the way these machines are sold is often online and through, for example, Facebook groups. There's a Facebook group which has like two hundred thousand members, and a lot of you know just the selling of machines and machine parts is done through this. And in terms of consumers, some stores even have line groups, and some are very very active. Uh, I subscribe to a bunch in my local area. Uh, you know, sometimes just like a lot of kids are just in these groups and they're posting pictures of what they won and talking about, oh, let's go and play on this day and things like that. It's very unusual. We could throw you in the machine, Brian, <laughs> since uh, you know, Gavin and I are... I'm a bit too, I'm a bit too fat. We're a little bigger than you. <laughs> there, there was that story of, of, of the boy who was caught in the machine. That's right. And there's a, there's a claw machine store that got in trouble because uh, they had models posing inside the claw machines and... Uh, that was scandalous. That became something that was reported on by the Apple Daily. And that's where we'll leave 2018 on claw machines with models inside. And I've been joined in the studio today on this week's edition of Taiwan This Week by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.